Have you heard this latest buzzword when it comes to people's faith? If you haven't, I'm pretty sure you will soon. The term is being thrown around in all of its nebulousness and lack of precision when it comes to definition. The term that's being thrown around when it comes to people's faith is this, <clears throat> deconstructing. I heard this yet? Okay, a few of you, de- deconstructing, like many buzzwords, the first problem is there are about a thousand different ways that people are defining this word. Uh, deconstruction has its roots in literary theory, guys like Jacques Derrida. I think most people use it to mean they're questioning long-held beliefs, questioning long-held beliefs. But on the other hand, some people are using it like, like deconstructing, as in the long-held belief in Jesus Christ. They're using it to mean deconverting. I think it it really got popular a couple years ago as several, I'll call them celebrity Christians, pretty well-known Christians, announced to the world that they were no longer believers. Uh, The one I'm thinking of, uh, a man named Joshua Harris. I read Joshua Harris's books. Maybe you did too. Joshua Harris, pastor, author, he announced on Instagram, quote, I am not a Christian. I mean, this was shocking to the evangelical world when he, a bombshell, I'm not a Christian. And he added, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. There you have it. Well, if that's deconstruction, we want no part of it. I want no part of it. I don't want you to have any part of it. And I'm supposed to guard you, Hebrews says, against an evil heart of unbelief. And you're supposed to guard me. I want no part of that. On the other hand, some Christians are using it when they're disturbed. The church as, you know, the body of Jesus Christ, blood body of Jesus Christ, forever, triumphant in all eternity. They're not talking about that. The church institution, they look around and they see the same kind of worldliness embedded in some, in, in the, in some churches, the same racism or sexism or materialism, consumerism they see in the world. And so they go, we've got to deconstruct. Well, if that's what they mean, that's just biblical Christianity. Paul says in Thessalonians, don't test everything. Well, okay. Uh, Kirsten Sanders published a helpful article, and she defines deconstruction as the struggle to correct or deepen naive belief. Okay, as in wrestle with stuff. Oh, I mean, that's fair, right? Don't just take it on face value because somebody told you you need to believe it. Well, fine. But then you see it, and you see it thrown around so casually. This is people's faith, and you're deconstructing. Like, you'll be on social media, and somebody will be like, yeah, I'm deconstructing. And like, later, I'm going to get a haircut. You're like, those are not the same, you know? <laughs> Might do some laundry, and then I'll deconstruct. Like, so if you, again, if you haven't heard this term, you will. This is what I'll say at this stage. Uh, if somebody talks about deconstruction, or you have a friend or a loved one who talks about deconstructing, ask them before you engage, simply ask, hey, do me a favor. Will you clearly define for me what exactly you mean by that word? Because based on what they, how they're defining it, that matters how you're going to engage with them. The larger issue behind all this, this is what I'm driving at, the larger issue behind all this, I think is just in a sort of skepticism right now in the world that you can really know anything. That's the heart of deconstruction. How can we know anything? They're just concepts, just words. We culturally attach all this value to it, but can we really know anything about God or about faith or, or anything at all? It's very popular. In fact, it's sort of seen as almost certainty right now is seen as arrogance. 
See, if you know you know something, it's like, well, who are you to say you know, right? Certainty is arrogance. Well, here, what do we do with 1 John? We've got a whole series, and if you're joining us today, welcome. We've been in a series in 1 John. I'm calling that you may know. It's a sermon series about assurance of salvation. And here you've got John going, it is absolutely possible to know some truth about God. And here's the kicker, it's even possible to know that you know God. It's possible to know you're saved. Well, let me show you. We're going to be, this is a verse from kind of taken in the middle of our passage today, but just look at 2.21, 1 John 2.21. He says, I write to you, he's talking to Christians, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. He says earlier in, in, in chapter 2, verse 3, we know that we've come to know him. And I think a lot of people would consider that arrogant. Think about that for a second. Imagine maybe your friends that are in more of a secular culture. Can you hear them saying, uh, you know, I, uh, yeah, I, I, know that I'm, I know that I know God. You say, I, I know that I'm going to heaven. I know that I'm saved. I know that his favor rests upon me. I think many people would say to that, huh, that's a pretty arrogant thing to say. How can you say you know God, you're good with God, that you're saved, you're certain you're going to heaven? Do you hear this guy? He must think he's morally hot stuff to think that he can know God that way. I mean, who do you think you are? You can know God. If that's the response, then what you would want to say is, wait a minute, it sounds like you don't understand the first thing about Christianity. It's, what it means to be a Christian is not so much what we do and what we say, what we believe, as what God has done. Christianity is a standing. And that's why it's not arrogant to know that you know you've been rescued. If anything, it's humble. It's admitting I couldn't save myself. I had to be rescued. Look, this is difficult to understand. I thought of a couple analogies. I tested them out in the 8 a.m. This is the one that worked. <laughs> if this one doesn't work, I'll try some other ones. <clears throat> but to, it's not arrogant. My mom and dad are here today. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. They're here for Carson's baptism. And um, uh, I, I hope you'll meet them today. If when I introduce them to you, what if as you come by and meet them, over and over you hear me say all day long, hey, come here, meet. This is who I hope are my mom and dad. <laughs> and at first you're like, did I, did I, like, Finally, you pull me aside and you say, Tom, I've heard you now do this multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> I keep hearing you introduce them as the people you sure hope are your mom and dad. Can you um, unpack that? Are you like deconstructing? <laughs> like, are you, you know, what do you, what do you mean by that? And what if I looked at you in all earnestness and said, well, the reason I say that is I want to be humble and I don't want to be seen as arrogant and it would just be horribly arrogant of me to say, yeah, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's my mom and dad. I would, I would never want to presume such arrogance. You'd say, I, I really don't think you understand how this whole thing works. Um, you, you've been bestowed the rights and responsibilities and massive inheritance. No, I don't know. <laughs> my sister's here too. I don't know. Yeah, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> You've been bestowed these rights and responsibilities, not so much on what you did or didn't do, but through birth or through adoption, a parent bestows the rights 
on this child. Everybody get my point? It is a standing, and it's not arrogant to make a certainty claim when it comes to one's standing with God. That's exactly what Christianity says. In John, when he wrote the the gospel of John, first chapter, he says, to all those who received Jesus, who believed on his name, God gave them the right to what? To become children of God. There it is. To be a Christian is to have received those rights. To know that God has said, you are my child. You've moved out of death into life. You're either in it or you're out. There's nothing in the middle. You're either justified by faith. Justified means you were a guilty sinner declared righteous in the sight of God because you've received Christ. And therefore, Christ's record of moral righteousness has been transferred to you. And the wages of sin that you deserve were transferred to him or you haven't. So when somebody says, I don't see how anybody could say they know they're a Christian. Say, you don't understand Christianity at all. See? Now, is it fair then for a Christian, uh, having said all that, is it still fair for a Christian to be like, yeah, but how do I have assurance of salvation? How do I like know that I know? And this is especially important. Some of you know what I mean. This is especially important if you were saved, maybe you grew up in church and you were saved at a young age, right? Because you didn't have some darkness to light testimony. It's not like, yeah, man, I was... I was strung out and I had, I had killed a man and I was on death row. And then in that prison cell, I, the gospel was shared with me and then I got saved at eight. And after that, I was no, <laughs> like, what kind of, what kind of childhood did you, right? So if you have some darkness to light, you can point to that and go, well, how else but the Holy Spirit, right? This has to be of God. But what if you grew up and you were a relatively nice kid and you get saved? And you're still like a relatively nice kid. On the inside, everything's different. You've transferred from darkness to light. But on the outside, externally, there may not be that much difference. So John says, you can know. And he gives you these three, I keep calling them tests, but that's not the, not math test, COVID test. Not you have to do well on this. It's, this reveals what you got. Three indicators. Let's do that. Three indicators. You remember the first one? The first one was the character indicator. Does your life reflect uh, uh, that you're a child of God, your behavior. In fact, mom gave me a good uh, illustration for this sermon. I was joking about, hey, if people come up to you and say, I hope you're my parents, it's because I use this illustration, and <laughs> congratulations, you're a sermon illustration. Uh, and she stood next to somebody, and mom goes, well, family resemblance. I'm like, that'll preach. Exactly, that's, yeah. So the, the character test, do you have a family resemblance to your heavenly father? Do you live like God? Do you live in light? The second, of course, is the love test. It's not just your character. Do you love others? And then the third, and we've dealt with both those. We've talked so much about those. Well, now he comes to this third indicator, the truth indicator. A true Christian can know they're saved because there's a certain doctrinal core belief they hold. And that's what John says Not everybody holds that. In fact, they're deceivers out there. Look at verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. These are those who do not hold to this truth about Jesus Christ. So let's dive into this. Um, If you want an outline today, if you want to know the moves the sermon is going to make, they follow the moves I think John makes in this text. First, he's going to draw the battle lines clearly. He's going to clearly draw the lines. Then he's going to move into define the lie clearly. He's going to define the lie. He's going to draw the lines on who's telling the truth and who's lying. Then he's going to tell you what that lie is. He's going to define the lie. And then the third and final move is he's going to remind believers of two great safeguards against all this deception. He doesn't have to give them to him. You've already got them. He's just going to remind you what you have. Got it? Draw the lines. Define the lie. Remind Christians of the safeguards. Let's get right to it. 
Start in verse 18. We'll, we'll try to cover 18 through 27 today. 18. <clears throat> you there? Children. Uh, remember, he's been addressing, these are believers. He calls them little children in the faith. Children. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Whoo! In every congregation, there's usually at least two groups on a verse like this, and I love them both. One, your heart just started pounding a little more, and your blood started boiling. You heard last, you heard last hour and Antichrist and Revelation and end times. Woo! I've been waiting for Pastor Tom to get to this. Honey, grab your purse. I put the charts in there. <laughs> you know, you chart, if you got charts, you know, I'm yeah. The other group hears Antichrist, Revelation, last hour, and they go. It is all I can do to get my kids to school with matching socks. <laughs> Please, I can't even right now. With the, if the last hour comes, I hope it comes like on a school day because that will really bail me out of a lot of embarrassment. <laughs> you know, whew, right? We can do better. We, 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 we can't get our heads around what John is saying. What does he mean by first the last hour? When he says it is the last hour, uh, he is speaking in terms of epochs, of periods of, of history, if you will, like acts of a play. Act one, before the time of Jesus. Act two, the time of Jesus. We are in act three of the play, y'all. Intermission is over. Like, this is it. The only thing that remains, curtain, and the author of the play walks out onto the stage. And when the author walks out on the stage, y'all, the play is over. History is not cyclical. History is driving toward a conclusion. And we are closer now than we've ever been. That's what he means when he says we are in the last hour. This is it. it as John Calvin, uh, his quote, nothing else remains to be accomplished for the redemption of the world except for Christ to re reappear. That's it. There's no more act of salvation redemptive history that has to happen. There's no more box that needs to be checked Except for Jesus Christ. We sang, in the 8 a.m., we sang a hymn. You know it? It is well, it is. You know that one? And Lord, haste the day when the, right? Yeah, yeah, you got it. Thank you. Yes. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well, it is well with my soul. So we, we, Christians are literally praying for that day to come. You believe it, right? Do you still believe we're in the last hour? You believe he could come? Like the trumpet's gonna sound? You think he could come before the end of this sermon? Something like, depends on how long the sermon. <laughs> well, that's just it. Now, he doesn't, John doesn't give us a time, does he? You say, well, if he wrote that 1,900 years ago, if that's the last hour, how do you explain we've been here, well, 2,000 years? He says, ah, see, who are you to tell God who stands outside time and eternity that he's not following your clock? Come on. Uh, the... Uh, uh, you've forgotten Second Peter, which says, don't you remember? For the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. So it's the last hour. He could come in any minute. Let me put this in Baptist terms. When it comes to the return of Jesus, we're not on the planning committee. We're on the reception committee. <laughs> our job is to be ready. It's not our job to know the time or to plan. And that means some of you are planning... Uh, 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 you, C.S. Lewis says we should be planning like he won't return for another 100 years and ready like he could return this instant. Does that make sense? In other words, Christ is, think about it. Christ is going to return right before a seminary graduate commencement. Won't that be awkward? 
You guys ready to go minister the world? Yeah. You ready to tell everybody about Jesus? Yeah. We don't have much time before Christ can pop it up. Okay, that's it. (laughs) But what were they supposed to be doing? Exactly that. And he'll be pleased. He'll be pleased. What if we've got baptisms scheduled for next Sunday? What if they come right before those people get baptized? The Lord will be pleased because they're doing exactly what they were supposed to do. Follow him in believers. It's up to him to know the time. Okay, that's the last hour. What about, who are these antichrists? John and only John uses the word antichrist. It's the only time you'll see it in the New Testament. It's, it's John. That's his, his term. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness, but John uses antichrist to mean three things, depending on his context. First, capital A, antichrist. The Greek prefix anti can either mean opposed to, that's how we use it usually, opposed to, or instead of. Well, either way, if someone sets themselves up instead of Christ, they're certainly opposed to Jesus Christ. So capital A, Antichrist, this one who will come and uh, 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 set himself up in place of the Savior of the world, and apparently he's going to get a huge following. Many will follow this Antichrist. That's capital A, Antichrist. You'd say, well, that's demonic. That, that person is a puppet of Satan, and you'd be right. So the same spirit that animates that capital A Antichrist, John is going to say in a couple chapters, chapter 4, the spirit of Antichrist is already present in the world. And he says, you have heard Antichrist. You have heard Antichrist is coming. Where does he get that? He gets it from Mark 13, verse 22, where Jesus says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. He's saying, that's where you heard it. You heard it from the apostolic teaching. You read Mark. And Jesus says, we're going to have that, that spirit of Antichrist, which means there are lowercase a Antichrist. And this is what he's talking about right here. These false teachers who are opposed to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Got it? Capital A, Antichrist, the individual. The spirit of Antichrist. Then these lowercase a, Antichrist, who have that spirit foreshadowing the ultimate, capital A, Antichrist. And that's who we have here. And John, it's not easy to talk about, but John talks about what happened in verse 19. They didn't come from the world. Uh, They weren't outsiders. Look. These lowercase a antichrist, they were church members. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. John says there was actually a reason God did it, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, I don't think this is a difficult verse to understand. I think this is a difficult verse because we know people. It breaks your heart. We know people who seem so strong in the faith, who have now deconstructed or deconverted and left the faith. I mean, I, I read Joshua Harris's books. I listened to Derek Webb's music. I, I was blessed by it. And I think, what, what? And according to this verse, at least two doctrines of the Christian faith find their home in this verse. The first is the doctrine, we've talked about it before, known as perseverance of the saints. You may know it better as Once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. Now, this is a doctrine that I hold to, and we've talked about this before. I mentioned this three weeks ago, and I want to go back to it because John goes back to it. Once saved, always saved, in my opinion, is a true statement that almost always gets latched onto by the exact opposite people who need to hear it. Fair? So once saved, always saved is a true doctrine that is meant to be of great encouragement to the 80-year-old 
who is now in assisted living, and her, uh, she's unable to come to church. She's shut in, and she's unable to fellowship with the believers, and she starts having doubts. What if I'm not really saved? What if I'm not a believer? And then she has a little bit of dementia, and she thinks, what if I forget God? Once saved, always saved is for her. Faithfully walking, you're supposed to go to her. And if you know this person, you can do it. You pull them close and you say, listen, even if you forget God, God will not forget you. Once saved, always saved. You didn't do anything to earn your salvation, so you can't do anything to lose your salvation. See? That's never who receives that doctrine. Never. It's the guy who's like, yeah, preacher, I ain't been to church in 50 years. I don't care anything about God. I don't care anything about your Bible. But me and the man upstairs, we got it worked out. Because I was seven years old at vacation Bible school. And I prayed a prayer. You know how it is. Once saved, always saved. You're killing me, man. You've taken this truth and, and applied. The, the exact wrong people need to, uh, who need to hear it seem to glom onto it. John is saying, these that have left the faith proves that they never really had saving faith to begin with. Mark 13, 13, he says, Jesus says, those who endure to the end will be saved. Question, does that mean that our salvation depends on our ability to endure to the end? Our ability to persevere? No, it means persevering to the end is the evidence that you were truly saved to begin with. Got it? Let me say it. Salvation is not the reward of persevering to the end. Persevering to the end is the evidence of genuine salvation. You cannot lose your salvation because you did not earn your salvation. The quote-unquote faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed at the foundation. Fact. Got it? The faith that fizzles before the finish must have been flawed from the foundation. You say, where do you get that? First John 2, 19. This touches also on the doctrine of what they call the visible and invisible church. In other words, there will be those who are among the church. They're members of the church. They're tough to distinguish from true converts, but in the end, it'll be revealed their hearts were never truly converted. Outwardly, they check the right boxes, but their hearts have no love for Jesus or his people. Jesus says in Matthew 13, he tells this story about tares among wheat. Somebody grew a good wheat field and an enemy who hated that man came and sowed a bunch of tares, which are apparently weeds that can choke out the health of the wheat. And so the wheat, so people come in and say, should we pull out all the tares, find out who's not really coming? He says, whoa, 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 whoa. You might accidentally damage a wheat in all your intensity trying to tear out the tares. So let's let them both grow up together and then there'll be a great harvest and the tares will be dealt with, taken away. Uh, this is tough to hear because we know people. Now, we're not all, we can't see inside people's hearts. I understand that. But um, I want you to know this must have been really personal to John. This is not academic for John, is it? Why? You know where he uses that exact phrase, went out? He uses it, exact phrase, they departed from us. He uses the exact phrase in John 13 when his buddy walked with him for three years, knew him, loved him, laughed with him. Followed Jesus together. Judas Iscariot went out from the Last Supper. Same phrase. And so when John writes that, is he, he's got to be thinking of Judas. And that's the thing. It's wheat and tares. Do you notice? It always strikes me. Side note about Judas. You know what gets me? You know what's really convicting to me as a Christian minister? Is that, they, is that when Jesus at the Last Supper says, one of you will betray me, they didn't all know it was Judas. Am I the only one who thought it? Like, 
Judas is not like, the picture of the Last Supper, he's not like this wicked villain with a handlebar mustache, you know, and this like top hat, like, right? And so when they're like, one of you will betray me, all the disciples are like, yeah, no kidding. (laughs) They don't know it's Judas. They can't figure it out. In fact, what are they all saying? They're like, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Judas like, (laughs) right? You with me? What does that mean? This is what that means. That means all through the ministry, there was nothing spectacular that stood out. So when Jesus sent the disciples out to heal, not a single one of them was like, yeah, you know, looking back, Jesus told us to all heal a leper. And I noticed everybody got healed, but Judas's leper didn't get healed. (laughs) Or like he sent us out to cast out demons and everybody's demon got cast out except Judas's. He's like, mine doesn't work, right? And that's when we knew, that's when we knew. No, what does that tell you? It means Judas's demons came out. It means his healing worked. What that means is you can be very skilled at exercising the gifts of ministry and not be saved. You see how that's convicting. You see how that, that's what John's saying. This is personal to him. He knew Judas. He presumably loved him. But he realizes it proves he was never really of us. And now there's these deceivers like Judas who are going to sneak in and try to, and try to deal with the, the true Christians and deceive them. And they're going to deceive them stuff like this. Have you had the anointing? I know you think you're saved. you got the Holy Spirit. But do you have the secret knowledge? See? And they lean in. You re- do you have the anointing? Do you really have the anointing? That's what these false teachers were offering. They were offering the anointing and the secret knowledge. And John says, enough. Look at the next verse. No, no, no. No, you don't need that. You have been anointed. You don't need to be anointed by these uh, uh, false cult leaders. Why? You've been anointed by the Holy One. Is that God or Jesus? We don't know. John is usually not real clear on his pronouns here. But either way, you've got it straight from God. So don't let some false teacher say, oh, yeah, but you need, you have you received the Holy Spirit. The anointing, by the way, is the Holy Spirit. The, the, the chrism, the, the, the gift uh, to every Christian at conversion, you receive the Holy Spirit. You do not need a second blessing. You do not need to go get more of the Holy Spirit. You need to let the Holy Spirit have more of you. See, and, uh, that's it. And you all have knowledge. What does he mean? You've got the word of God. Don't let some cult leader say, you've got the word of God, but do you have the Book of Mormon? You've got the word of God, but do you have these other books? You have all knowledge. Some of your translations say, you know all things. You, there'll be a footnote. You don't know how to, tra- either way, we don't, you know everything. <laughs> you know all things. David Allen preached on this, and he said after the sermon, uh, a teenager came up to him and said, when you preached on you know all things, I thought, not math. <laughs> what he means is not you know everything. It means you, have, you know everything necessary for salvation. You've got the spirit. You've got the word. So don't let them lead you astray. You don't. Don't let them come up to you and say, well, look, I know you've been taught this over at First Baptist, but they're so conservative with all their doctrines. I mean, Tom, he preaches it's the same stuff. It's the old stuff. You need what's new, right? Have you got the real anointing, you see? A cult leader tries to lead you astray. It's usually the offering of something new. And you can say, what John says, to his, he's, John's not going to let these deceivers wreck his people's faith. He says, you've got the Holy Spirit. You've got the word. Verse 21, I write to you, not, see, the same, we read this earlier, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and no lie is of the truth. Okay, so what is it? What is this? He's defined the lines clearly. What is the lie? What is it that he is so up in arms about? What is it that these cult leaders are denying? Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. 
For John, the height of heresy is to deny that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and Savior. Antichrists were probably Gnostics in their teaching. Maybe they would say something like, Jesus was a man, regular man. At his baptism, he got special anointing from God, and like the divine Christ rested upon him. And then right before he died on the cross, the divine Christ left him, left him, and he died as a man. And now, conveniently, that divinity can rest upon other prophets and add to uh, the revelation in Jesus Christ or something like that. John's saying, no, 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 no. To deny the incarnation that God became a human being is to strike at the very root of Christianity. Modern thinkers have more refined ways to say it, but they're saying the same thing. I'm thinking here of Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, and Muslims. They respect, they, all those groups respect Jesus. They, all, they do not deny Jesus was great. They love Jesus. But ask them, is Jesus the eternal God, equal with God the Father, who at the virgin birth took on human flesh and was 100% God, 100% man, and died as all God, all man, and rose again and lives forever in his glorified body as the second member of the Trinity? And they'll say, oh, no, 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 we don't believe that. And John will say, liar. Remember how I said a few weeks ago, John's your buddy with no filter? Yeah. He'll say, liar. Why? Because you should have known better. You know. In the, in the Gospels, Philip asks, won't you show us the Father? And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you this long, man? If you look at me, you see the Father. In Colossians, it says, God was pleased to have the fullness of deity dwell in Jesus. And many people will say, well, we, we all worship the same God. We just disagree about Jesus. John will say, no, 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 no. Don't say, we, don't tell me you worship the true and living God. John says you don't. Why? Because if you choose, if you, you can't say I choose God but reject Jesus. To reject Jesus is to de- deny God. He explains the dreadful consequences of this lie. Verse 23, no one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. In other words, the person who denies Jesus has no fellowship with God. As John Stott says, why? Because only Jesus can reveal God the father to us. Only Jesus can represent humanity to God. Only Jesus can die a sinner's death on the cross. He had no sin, but he died in our place and for our salvation. Only Jesus can represent us to God. Only he can reveal God to us. Only he can represent us to God. And only Jesus can reconcile us to the Father. He alone can reveal. He alone can represent. He alone can reconcile. If you don't have Jesus, you have no access to God the Father. Jesus himself says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I want you to see how relevant and applicable this verse is to modern, especially modern secular thinking. Because I think you're going to hear something like this. At least I've heard it. All right. Preacher. When you say, I'm sorry, I can't get my head around this. When you say, Jesus is the only way to God the Father. I just... Surely there's somebody in here that probably thinks this way. I just can't get with that. Why? Because when you say Jesus is the only way to God the Father, you hear how exclusive that is. That is very exclusive. And I believe in an inclusive God, not exclusive. And so I said, well, tell me what you believe. Well, I believe, I believe it doesn't matter what you believe, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, secular, human, whatever, as long as you're a good person, you can be good with God, right? Because that's for everybody. As long as you're, if, you, if you're a good person, just, just be a kind person, man. Just don't be a jerk, right? Just, just be good, and that's how you get right with God. If somebody says that to you, you need to look at them and say, that's the most exclusive thing I've ever heard. You know why? 
It excludes all the bad people. In your doctrine, you just told me you can't get in if you're bad. So that means all the criminals and all the people who've hurt others and every slanderer and every person who's envied and every person who's struggling and all the addicts, the secular humanist who claims to be so inclusive has just written all them off. He said, well, now hold up. If they change, if they change, okay, so now you're excluding the people who've tried real hard to change and time after time they can't find any freedom and they still are left evil. So it's, it's people who are either good or have the ability to get good. You have written off all the marginalized, all the oppressed, all the addicts. If you're on the side of the road and you're in a moral quagmire, God help you. If a secular humanist come by, they'll have no mercy for you. Why? Because their doctrine gives nothing. It completely excludes you. What you need is the gospel. See, now the gospel says what? Whosoever will may come. On the one hand, I know the gospel seems exclusive, but it sure seems to me to be the most inclusive exclusivity that there is, and secular humanism seems to be the most exclusive inclusivity that there ever is. I'll say it this way. The open door that is Jesus Christ is the only door. But bless God, the only door is an open door. Whosoever will may come. It's the only door, but it's an open door. Well, the uh, application of all this, in, in just a, just a few moments remain here, and I'll close. I'll take these last verses. J- John's word to his people, would surely any pastor who preaches through this is going to make it his word to his people. John is not going to let these deceivers wreck the lives of his believers that he loves so much. And so look at, he gives, he, he, to close, he says, here's the application. Here are your two safeguards. See if you can pick them out in verses 24 to 27. Two safeguards. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. That's the first one. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I think it's cool. The same guy who wrote John 3.16 wrote that verse, eternal life. He had a lot to say about that. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him, that's the second one, abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But at, now, when he says you have no need anyone should teach you, he obviously doesn't mean you don't need to learn anything because he himself is teaching them as he says this. What he means is don't go look into these false teachers to give you extra knowledge. You've got the word abiding in you and you've got the anointing. Remember, the anointing is the Holy Spirit. You've got the Holy Spirit abiding in you. And he teaches you about everything. Remember, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth and is true and is no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. All I want to point out here is that he reminds him he doesn't teach him, so to speak. He, he doesn't give him some new truth. He says, Rem- remember, Christian, you have these two things. The first, the word. Look at verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You want to be safe from these deceptions? Do you want to have that true assurance? Let me ask you, is the word of God abiding in you. Abide means dwell or remain. Does God's word remain in you? Does God's word visit your heart occasionally on vacation? Or does God live here? Is your heart the word's lake house or your primary residence? Everybody see what I'm saying? This is not like, oh yeah, I got a condo down at the beach every now and then the word of God comes in here. Or does it remain in you? Does it live in you? Does it abide in you? 
My kids are at the age where they love more than anything in the world dad jokes. <laughs> Don't they? And one of our favorites, and it happens over and over, and it's always funny, <laughs> is when, I can't find my Bible, I can't find my Bible. Well, that's because it's hidden in your heart. Oh! I, I see that you also love dad jokes, church. What a sweet. <clears throat> What's my point? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If you say, well, I, you do realize right now at this moment, something is dwelling in you. If not the word of God, what? Let the latest Netflix series dwell in you richly. It longs to. Let this, you know, distraction dwell in you. Something's going to dwell in you. Something's going to abide, live there, take up residence. Let it be the word of God. And of course, the Holy Spirit, verse 27. But the anointing you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. You've got the word and the spirit. (sighs) You know, it's got to be both. Walker's going to come and lead us in a time of response. and We'll, we'll have an invitation here. But I, I, you got, it's got to be both. It's got to be both. To have just the Spirit and no access to the Word. Can you imagine if we all had, the, well, I think the Spirit's leading me here. I think the Spirit's leading this. I think the Spirit's leading this. And no access to the truth of God's Word by which we could test all this stuff. Uh, somebody said it this way. All Spirit and no Word and the people blow up. But on the other hand, all Word... And no spirit, and the people dry up. Word and spirit, and together we grow up. See, that's what we're after. Word and spirit, truth on fire, set ablaze in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. These last uh, verses, you know, it's hard not to get emotional on the day you baptize one of your own children. But this would be my message to these new believers. This would be the mess- my message to my son. Let, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let the anointing you receive from him abide in you. And here's the crazy thing. And you abide in the word. And you abide in the Holy Spirit. That's why I tell graduates at senior breakfast every year, hey, look for the ancient paths. Ask where are the ancient paths. Don't be... Don't, be, don't chase around every newfangled wave of doctrine. And the latest is deconstruction, but there'll be another one that comes after that. You let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. You let the anointing, the Holy Spirit, who you received, abide in you. Let him have all of you so that we can await and be ready to receive Jesus when he returns. And need not be ashamed, for it is, little children, the last hour. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would grant everyone who is a believer here today or who watches this message on video, grant to them that blessed assurance to know as they have acknowledged your Lordship, Jesus, and your deity, they have acknowledged the incarnation. Let them take assurance of their salvation from evidence, from this doctrinal indicator and give them assurance that can only come from you. Let them abide. Let them continue to abide and not be deceived. God, I also pray that you grant anyone who is not yet a believer, perhaps they've been squirming throughout this entire series, 
because you've been convicting them that though they have the outward appearance of faith, they, didn't, they, they, they have not been born again. They, they, they do not pass these indicators. And God, I thank you that you're convicting them before it's eternally too late. You're giving them a chance even now. And so God, grant to them, draw them, Lord, and let them be saved today. Don't let them wait. Let today be the day of their salvation. God, grant that to them. And we give you thanks and glory for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.